Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. The Mysteries of Udolfo, Volume 3, Chapter 5. The midnight clock has tolled, and hark, the bell of death beats slow. Heard ye the note profound? It pauses now, and now with rising knell, flings to the hollow gale its sullen sound. Mason. When Montoni was informed of the death of his wife, and considered that she had died without giving him the signature so necessary to the accomplishment of his wishes, no sense of decency restrained the expression of his resentment. Emily anxiously avoided his presence, and watched during two days and two nights, with little intermission, by the corpse of her late aunt. Her mind deeply impressed with the unhappy fate of this object, she forgot all her faults, her unjust and imperious conduct to herself, and remembering only her sufferings, thought of her only with tender compassion. Sometimes, however, she could not avoid musing upon the strange infatuation that had proved so fatal to her aunt, and involved herself in a labyrinth of misfortune from which she saw no means of escaping, the marriage with Montoni. But when she considered this circumstance, it was more in sorrow than in anger, more for the purpose of indulging lamentation than reproach. In her pious care she was not disturbed by Montoni, who not only avoided the chamber where the remains of his wife were laid, but that part of the castle adjoining to it, as if he had apprehended a contagion in death. He seemed to have given no orders respecting the funeral and Emily began to fear he meant to offer a new insult to the memory of Madame Montoni. But from this apprehension she was relieved when on the evening of the second day Annette informed her that the interment was to take place that night. She knew that Montoni would not attend, and it was so very grievous to her to think that the remains of her unfortunate aunt would pass to the grave without one relative or friend to pay them the last decent rites that she determined to be deterred by no considerations for herself from observing this duty. She would otherwise have shrunk from the circumstance of following them to the cold vault, to which they were to be carried by men, whose air and countenance seemed to stamp them for murderers, at the midnight hour of silence and privacy which Montoni had chosen for committing, if possible, to oblivion the relics of a woman whom his harsh conduct had at least contributed to destroy. Emily, shuddering with emotions of horror and grief, assisted by Annette, prepared the corpse for interment, and having wrapped it in cerements and covered it with a winding sheet, they watched beside it till past midnight when they heard the approaching footsteps of the men who were to lay it in its earthly bed. It was with difficulty that Emily overcame her emotion when the door of the chamber being thrown open, their gloomy countenances were seen by the glare of the torch they carried and two of them, without speaking, 
lifted the body on their shoulders, while the third preceded them with the light, descending through the castle towards the grave, which was in the lower vault of the chapel within the castle walls. They had to cross two courts towards the east wing of the castle, which, adjoining the chapel, was, like it, in ruins. But the silence and gloom of these courts had now little power over Emily's mind, occupied as it was with more mournful ideas, and she scarcely heard the low and dismal hooting of the night birds that roosted among the ivied balance of the ruin, or perceived the still flittings of the bat which frequently crossed her way. But when having entered the chapel, and passed between the mouldering pillars of the aisles, the bearers stopped at a flight of stairs that led down to a low arched door, and their comrade having descended to unlock it, she saw imperfectly the gloomy abyss beyond, saw the corpse of her aunt carried down these steps, and the ruffian-like figure that stood with the torch at the bottom to receive it. All her fortitude was lost in emotions of inexpressible grief and terror. She turned to lean upon Annette, who was cold and trembling like herself, and she lingered so long on the summit of the flight that the gleam of the torch began to die away on the pillars of the chapel, and the men were almost beyond her view. Then, the gloom around her wakening other fears, and a sense of what she considered to be her duty overcoming her reluctance, she descended to the vaults, following the echo of footsteps and the faint ray that pierced the darkness, till the harsh grating of a distant door that was opened to receive the corpse again appalled her. After the pause of a moment, she went on, and as she entered the vaults, saw between the arches, at some distance, the men lay down the body near the edge of an open grave, where stood another of Montoni's men and a priest, whom she did not observe till he began the burial service. Then lifting her eyes from the ground, she saw the venerable figure of the friar, and heard him in a low voice, equally solemn and affecting, perform the service for the dead. At the moment in which they let down the body into the earth, the scene was such as only the dark pencil of a domancino perhaps, could have done justice to. The fierce features and wild dress of the condottieri, bending with their torches over the grave into which the corpse was descending, were contrasted by the venerable figure of the monk, wrapped in long black garments, his cowl thrown back from his pale face, on which the light gleaming strongly showed the lines of affliction softened by piety, and the few gray locks which time had spared on his temples, while beside him stood the softer form of Emily, who leaned for support upon Annette, her face half averted and shaded by a thin veil that fell over her figure, and her mild and beautiful countenance fixed in grief so solemn as admitted not of tears, while she thus saw committed untimely to the earth her last relative and friend. The gleams thrown between the arches of the vaults where, here and there, the broken ground marked the spots in which other bodies had been recently interred, and the general obscurity beyond were circumstances that alone would have led on the imagination of a spectator to scenes more horrible than even that which was pictured at the grave of the misguided and unfortunate Madame Montoni. When the service was over, the friar regarded Emily with attention and surprise, and looked as if he wished to speak to her but was restrained by the presence of the condottieri, 
who, as they now led their way to the courts, amused themselves with jokes upon his holy order, which he endured in silence, demanding only to be conducted safely to his convent, and to which Emily listened with concern and even horror. When they reached the court, the monk gave her his blessing, and after a lingering look of pity, turned away to the portal, whither one of the men carried a torch, while Annette, lighting another, preceded Emily to her apartment. The appearance of the friar, and the expression of tender compassion with which he had regarded her, had interested Emily, who, though it was at her earnest supplication that Montoni had consented to allow a priest to perform the last rites for his deceased wife, knew nothing concerning this person, till Annette now informed her that he belonged to a monastery situated among the mountains at a few miles' distance. The superior, who regarded Montoni and his associates not only with aversion, but with terror, had probably feared to offend him by refusing his request, and had therefore ordered a monk to officiate at the funeral, who, with the meek spirit of a Christian, had overcome his reluctance to enter the walls of such a castle by the wish of performing what he considered to be his duty, and as the chapel was built on consecrated ground, had not objected to commit to it the remains of the late unhappy Madame Montoni. Several days passed with Emily in total seclusion, and in a state of mind partaking both of terror for herself and grief for the departed. She at length determined to make other efforts to persuade Montoni to permit her return to France. Why he should wish to detain her, she could scarcely dare to conjecture, but it was too certain that he did so, and the absolute refusal he had formally given to her departure allowed her little hope that he would now consent to it. But the horror which his presence inspired made her defer from day to day the mention of this subject, and at last she was awakened from her inactivity only by a message from him desiring her attendance at a certain hour. She began to hope he meant to resign, now that her aunt was no more, the authority he had usurped over her, till she recollected that the estates, which had occasioned so much contention, were now hers, and she then feared Montoni was about to employ some stratagem for obtaining them, and that he would detain her, his prisoner, till he succeeded. This thought, instead of overcoming her with despondency, roused all the latent powers of her fortitude into action, and the property which she would willingly have resigned to secure the peace of her aunt, she resolved that no common sufferings of her own should ever compel her to give to Montoni. For Valancourt's sake also she determined to preserve these estates, since they would afford that competency by which she hoped to secure the comfort of their future lives. As she thought of this, she indulged the tenderness of tears, and anticipated the delight of that moment, when, with affectionate generosity, she might tell him they were his own. She saw the smile that lighted up his features, the affectionate regard, which spoke at once his joy and thanks, and at this instant she believed she could brave any suffering which the evil spirit of Montoni might be preparing for her. Remembering then, for the first time since her aunt's death, the papers relative to the estates in question, she determined to search for them as soon as her interview with Montoni was over. With these resolutions, she met him at the appointed time, 
and waited to hear his intention before she renewed her request. With him were Orsino and another officer, and both were standing near a table covered with papers which he appeared to be examining. I sent for you, Emily, said Montoni, raising his head, that you might be a witness in some business which I am transacting with my friend Orsino. All that is required of you will be to sign your name to this paper. He then took one up, hurried unintelligibly over some lines, and laying it before her on the table offered her a pen. She took it, and was going to write when the design of Mentoni came upon her mind like a flash of lightning. She trembled, let the pen fall, and refused to sign what she had not read. Montoni affected to laugh at her scruples, and taking up the paper again pretended to read. But Emily, who still trembled on perceiving her danger, and was astonished that her own credulity had so nearly betrayed her, positively refused to sign any paper whatever. Montoni, for some time, persevered in effecting to ridicule this refusal, but when he perceived by her steady perseverance that she understood his design, he changed his manner and bade her follow him to another room. There he told her that he had been willing to spare himself and her the trouble of useless contest in an affair where his will was justice and where she should find it law and had therefore endeavored to persuade rather than to compel her to the practice of her duty. I, as the husband of the late Signora Mantoni, he added, am the heir of all she possessed. The estates, therefore, which she refused to me in her lifetime can no longer be withheld. And for your own sake, I would undeceive you respecting a foolish assertion she once made to you in my hearing that these estates would be yours if she died without resigning them to me. She knew at that moment she had no power to withhold them from me after her decease, and I think you have more sense than to provoke my resentment by advancing an unjust claim. I am not in the habit of flattering, and you will therefore receive as sincere the praise I bestow when I say that you possess an understanding superior to that of your sex, and that you have none of those contemptible foibles that frequently mark the female character, such as averse and the love of power, which latter makes women delight to contradict and to tease when they cannot conquer. If I understand your disposition and your mind, you hold in sovereign contempt these common failings of your sex. Montoni paused, and Emily remained silent and expecting, for she knew him too well to believe he would condescend to such flattery unless he thought it would promote his own interest. And though he had forborne to name vanity among the foibles of women, it was evident that he considered it to be a predominant one since he designed to sacrifice to hers the character and understanding of her whole sex. Judging as I do, resumed Montoni, I cannot believe you will oppose where you know you cannot conquer, or indeed that you would wish to conquer, or be avaricious of any property when you have not justice on your side. I think it proper, however, to acquaint you with the alternative. If you have a just opinion of the subject in question, you shall be allowed a safe conveyance to France, within a short period. But if you are so unhappy as to be misled by the late assertion of the Signora, you shall remain my prisoner till you are convinced of your error. Emily calmly said, I am not so ignorant, Signor, of the laws on this subject as to be misled by the assertion of any person. The law, 
in the present instance, gives me the estates in question, and my own hand shall never betray my right. I have been mistaken in my opinion of you, it appears, rejoined Montoni sternly. You speak boldly and presumptuously upon a subject which you do not understand. For once, I am willing to pardon the conceit of ignorance, the weakness of your sex, too, from which it seems you are not exempt, claim some allowance. But if you persist in this strain, you have everything to fear from my justice. From your justice, Signor, rejoined Emily, I have nothing to fear. I have only to hope. Montoni looked at her with vexation, and seemed considering what to say. I find that you are weak enough, he resumed, to credit the idle assertion I alluded to. For your own sake I lament this. As to me, it is of little consequence. Your credulity can punish only yourself, and I must pity the weakness of mine which leads you to so much suffering as you are compelling me to prepare for you. You may find, perhaps, Signor, said Emily with mild dignity, that the strength of my mind is equal to the justice of my cause, and that I can endure with fortitude when it is in resistance of oppression. You speak like a heroine, said Montoni contemptuously. We shall see whether you suffer like one. Emily was silent, and he left the room. Recollecting that it was for Valancourt's sake she had thus resisted, she now smiled complacently upon the threatened sufferings, and retired to the spot which her aunt had pointed out as the repository of the papers, relative to the estates, where she found them as described. And since she knew of no better place of concealment than this, returned them, without examining their contents, being fearful of discovery, while she should attempt a perusal. To her own solitary chamber she once more returned, and there thought again of the late conversation with Montoni, and of the evil she might expect from opposition to his will. But his power did not appear so terrible to her imagination as it was wont to do. A sacred pride was in her heart that taught it to swell against the pressure of injustice, and almost to glory in the quiet sufferance of ills in a cause which had also the interest of Valancourt for its object. For the first time, she felt the full extent of her own superiority to Montoni, and despised the authority which till now she had only feared. As she sat musing, a peal of laughter rose from the terrace, and in going to the casement she saw, with inexpressible surprise, three ladies dressed in the gala habit of Venice, walking with several gentlemen below. She gazed in an astonishment that made her remain at the window, regardless of being observed, till the group passed under it, and, one of the strangers looking up, she perceived the features of Signora Livona, with whose manners she had been so much charmed the day after her arrival at Venice, and who had been there introduced at the table of Montoni. This discovery occasioned her an emotion of doubtful joy, for it was matter of joy and comfort to know that a person of a mind so gentle as that of Signora Livona seemed to be was near her, Yet there was something so extraordinary in her being at this castle, circumstanced, as it now was, and evidently by the gaiety of her air, with her own consent, that a very painful surmise arose concerning her character. But the thought was so shocking to Emily, whose affection the fascinating manners of the Signora had won, and appeared so improbable when she remembered these manners, 
that she dismissed it almost instantly. On Annette's appearance, however, she inquired concerning these strangers, and the former was as eager to tell as Emily was to learn. They are just come, Manzuel, said Annette, with two signors from Venice. And I was glad to see such Christian faces once again. But what can they mean by coming here? They must surely be stark mad to come freely to such a place as this. Yet they do come freely, for they seem merry enough, I am sure. They were taken prisoners, perhaps, said Emily. Taken prisoners, exclaimed Annette. No, indeed, Mamzoelle, not they. I remember one of them very well at Venice. She came two or three times to the seniors, you know, Mamzoelle, and it was said, but I did not believe a word of it, it was said that the senior liked her better than he should do. Then why, says I, bring her to my lady? Very true, said Ludovico, but he looked as if he knew more, too. Emily desired Annette would endeavor to learn who these ladies were, as well as all she could concerning them, and she then changed the subject and spoke of distant France. Ah, mademoiselle, we shall never see it more, said Annette, almost weeping. I must come on my travels, forsooth. Emily tried to soothe and to cheer her with a hope in which she scarcely herself indulged. How, how, mademoiselle, could you leave France, and leave Monsieur Valancourt, too? said Annette, sobbing. I, I am sure if Ludovico had been in France, I would never have left it. Why do you lament quitting France, then, said Emily, trying to smile, since, if you had remained there, you would not have found Ludovico? Ah, mademoiselle, I only wish I was out of this frightful castle serving you in France and I would care about nothing else. Thank you, my good Annette, for your affectionate regard. The time will come, I hope, when you may remember the expression of that wish with pleasure. Annette departed on her business, and Emily sought to lose the sense of her own cares in the visionary scenes of the poet. But she had again to lament the irresistible force of circumstances over the taste and powers of the mind and that it requires a spirit at ease to be sensible even to the abstract pleasures of pure intellect. The enthusiasm of genius with all its pictured scenes now appeared cold and dim. As she mused upon the book before her, she involuntarily exclaimed, Are these indeed the passages that have so often given me exquisite delight? Where did the charm exist? Was it in my mind? or in the imagination of the poet. It lived in each, said she, pausing. But the fire of the poet is vain, if the mind of his reader is not tempered like his own, however it may be inferior to his in power. Emily would have pursued this train of thinking, because it relieved her from more painful reflection. But she found again that thought cannot always be controlled by will and hers returned to the consideration of her own situation. In the evening, not choosing to venture down to the ramparts where she would be exposed to the rude gaze of Montoni's associates, she walked for air in the gallery adjoining her chamber. On reaching the farther end of which, she heard the distant sounds of merriment and laughter. 
It was the wild uproar of riot, not the cheering gaiety of tempered mirth, and seemed to come from that part of the castle where Montoni usually was. Such sounds at this time when her aunt had been so few days dead, particularly shocked her, consistent as they were with the late conduct of Montoni. As she listened, she thought she distinguished female voices mingling with the laughter, and this confirmed her worst surmise concerning the character of Signora Levona and her companions. It was evident that they had not been brought hither by compulsion, and she beheld herself in the remote wilds of the Apennine, surrounded by men whom she considered to be little less than ruffians, and their worst associates amid scenes of vice, from which her soul recoiled in horror. It was at this moment, when the scenes of the present and the future opened to her imagination, the image of Valancourt failed in its influence, and her resolution shook with dread. She thought she understood all the horrors which Montoni was preparing for, and shrunk from an encounter with such remorseless vengeance as he could inflict. The disputed estates she now almost determined to yield at once, whenever he should again call upon her that she might regain safety and freedom, but then the remembrance of Valancourt would steal to her heart and plunge her into the distractions of doubt. She continued walking in the gallery till evening threw its melancholy twilight through the painted casements and deepened the gloom of the oak wainscoting about her, while the distant perspective of the corridor was so much obscured as to be discernible only by the glimmering window that terminated it. Along the vaulted halls and passages below, peals of laughter echoed faintly at intervals to this remote part of the castle, and seemed to render the succeeding stillness more dreary. Emily, however, unwilling to return to her more forlorn chamber, whither Annette was not yet come, still paced the gallery. As she passed the door of the apartment, where she had once dared to lift the veil, which discovered to her a spectacle so horrible that she had never after remembered it, but with emotions of indescribable awe, this remembrance suddenly recurred. It now brought with it reflections more terrible than it had yet done, which the late conduct of Montoni occasioned, and hastening to quit the gallery while she had power to do so. She heard a sudden step behind her. It might be that of Annette, but turning fearfully to look, she saw through the gloom a tall figure following her, and all the horrors of that chamber rushed upon her mind. In the next moment she found herself clasped in the arms of some person and heard a deep voice murmur in her ear. When she had power to speak or to distinguish articulated sounds, she demanded who detained her. It is I, replied the voice. Why are you thus alarmed? She looked on the face of the person who spoke, but the feeble light that gleamed through the high casement at the end of the gallery did not permit her to distinguish the features. Whoever you are, said Emily in a trembling voice, for heaven's sake, let me go. My charming Emily, said the man, why will you shut yourself up in this obscure place when there is so much gaiety below? Return with me to the cedar parlor, where you will be the fairest ornament of the party. You shall not repent the exchange. Emily disdained to reply and still endeavored to liberate herself. Promise that you will come, he continued, and I will release you immediately. But first give me a reward for doing so. 
Who are you? demanded Emily, in a tone of mingled terror and indignation, while she still struggled for liberty. Who are you that you have the cruelty thus to insult me? Why call me cruel? said the man. I would remove you from this dreary solitude to a merry party below. Do you not know me? Emily now faintly remembered that he was one of the officers who were with Montoni when she attended him in the morning. I thank you for the kindness of your intention, she replied, without appearing to understand him, but I wish for nothing so much as that you would leave me. Charming Emily, said he, give up this foolish whim for solitude and come with me to the company and eclipse the beauties who make part of it. You only are worthy of my love. He attempted to kiss her hand, but the strong impulse of her indignation gave her power to liberate herself, and she fled towards the chamber. She closed the door before he reached it, having secured which, she sunk in a chair, overcome by terror and by the exertion she had made, while she heard his voice and his attempts to open the door without having the power to raise herself. At length, she perceived him depart, and had remained listening for a considerable time and was somewhat revived by not hearing any sound when suddenly she remembered the door of the private staircase, and that he might enter that way, since it was fastened only on the other side. She then employed herself in endeavouring to secure it, in the manner she had formerly done. It appeared to her that Montoni had already commenced his scheme of vengeance, by withdrawing from her his protection, and she repented of the rashness that had made her brave the power of such a man. To retain the estate seemed to be now utterly impossible, and to preserve her life, perhaps her honor, she resolved, if she should escape the horrors of this night, to give up all claims to the estates on the morrow, providing Montoni would suffer her to depart from Adolfo. When she had come to this decision, her mind became more composed. Though she still anxiously listened, and often started at ideal sounds that appeared to issue from the staircase. Having sat in darkness for some hours, during all which time Annette did not appear, she began to have serious apprehensions for her, but not daring to venture down into the castle was compelled to remain in uncertainty as to the cause of this unusual absence. Emily often stole to the staircase door to listen if any step approached, but still no sound alarmed her. Determining, however, to watch during the night, she once more rested on her dark and desolate couch and bathed the pillow with innocent tears. She thought of her deceased parents and then of the absent Valancourt and frequently called upon their names, for the profound stillness that now reigned was propitious to the musing sorrow of her mind. While she thus remained, her ear suddenly caught the notes of a distant music, to which she listened attentively, and soon perceiving this to be the instrument she had formerly heard at midnight, she rose and stepped softly to the casement, to which the sounds appeared to come from a lower room. In a few moments, their soft melody was accompanied by a voice so full of pathos that it evidently sang not of imaginary sorrows. Its sweet and peculiar tone she thought she had heard somewhere before. Yet, if this was not fancy, it was at most a very faint recollection. It stole over her mind amidst the anguish of her present suffering, like a celestial strain 
soothing and reassuring her. Pleasant as the gale of spring that sighs on the hunter's ear when he awakens from dreams of joy, and has heard the music of the spirits of the hill. Ocean, A.R. But her emotion can scarcely be imagined when she heard sung, with the taste and simplicity of true feeling, one of the popular airs of her native province, to which she had often listened with delight when a child, and which she had so often heard her father repeat. To this well-known song, never till now, heard but in her native country, her heart melted, while the memory of pastimes returned. The pleasant, peaceful scenes of Gascony, the tenderness and goodness of her parents, the taste and simplicity of her former life, all rose to her fancy and formed a picture, so sweet and glowing, so strikingly contrasted with the scenes, the characters, and the dangers which now surrounded her, that her mind could not bear to pause upon the retrospect, and shrunk at the acuteness of its own sufferings. Her sighs were deep and convulsed. She could no longer listen to the strain that had so often charmed her to tranquility, and she withdrew from the casement to a remoter part of the chamber. But she was not yet beyond the reach of the music. She heard the measure change, and the succeeding air called her again to the window, for she immediately recollected it to be the same as she had formerly heard in the fishing house in Gascony. Assisted, perhaps, by the mystery which had then accompanied this strain, it made so deep an impression on her memory that she had never since entirely forgotten it, and the manner in which it was now sung convinced her, however unaccountable the circumstances appeared, that this was the same voice she had then heard. Surprise soon yielded to other emotions. A thought darted like lightning upon her mind which discovered a train of hopes that revived all her spirits. Yet these hopes were so new, so unexpected, so astonishing, that she did not dare to trust, though she could not resolve to discourage them. She sat down by the casement, breathless, and overcome with the alternate motions of hope and fear, then rose again, leaned from the window, that she might catch a nearer sound, listened, now doubting, and then believing, softly exclaimed the name of Alancourt, and then sunk again into the chair. Yes, it was possible that Valancourt was near her, and she recollected circumstances which induced her to believe it was his voice she had just heard. She remembered he had more than once said that the fishing house, where she had formerly listened to this voice and air, and where she had seen penciled sonnets addressed to herself, had been his favorite haunt before he had been made known to her. There, too, she had herself unexpectedly met him, it appeared, from these circumstances, more than probable that he was the musician who had formerly charmed her attention, and the author of the lines which had expressed such tender admiration. Who else, indeed, could it be? She was unable, at that time, to form a conjecture as to the writer. But, since her acquaintance with Valancourt, whenever he had mentioned the fishing house to have been known to him, she had not scrupled to believe that he was the author of the sonnets. As these considerations passed over her mind, joy, fear, and tenderness contended at her heart. She leaned again from the casement to catch the sounds, which might confirm or destroy her hope, 
though she did not recollect to have ever heard him sing, but the voice and the instrument now ceased. She considered for a moment whether she should venture to speak, then not choosing lest it should be he to mention his name, and yet too much interested to neglect the opportunity of inquiring, she called from the casement, Is that song from Gascony? Her anxious attention was not cheered by any reply. Everything remained silent, her impatience increasing with her fears. She repeated the question, but still no sound was heard except the sighings of the wind among the battlements above, and she endeavored to console herself with the belief that the stranger, whoever he was, had retired before she had spoken, beyond the reach of her voice, which it appeared certain had Valancourt heard and recognized he would instantly have replied to. Presently, however, she considered that a motive of prudence, and not an accidental removal, might occasion his silence, but the surmise that led to this reflection suddenly changed her hope and joy to terror and grief, for if Valancourt were in the castle, it was too probable that he was here a prisoner, taken with some of his countrymen, many of whom were at that time engaged in the wars of Italy or intercepted in some attempt to reach her. Had he even recollected Emily's voice, he would have feared, in these circumstances, to reply to it in the presence of the men who guarded his prison. What so lately she had eagerly hoped she now believed she dreaded, dreaded to know that Valancourt was near her, and while she was anxious to be relieved from her apprehension for his safety, she still was unconscious that a hope of soon seeing him struggled with the fear. She remained listening at the casement till the air began to freshen, and one high mountain in the east to glimmer with the morning. When wearied with anxiety, she retired to her couch, where she found it utterly impossible to sleep, for joy, tenderness, doubt, and apprehension distracted her during the whole night. Now she rose from the couch and opened the casement to listen. Then she would pace the room with impatient steps, and at length return with despondence to her pillow. Never did hours appear to move so heavily as those of this anxious night, after which she hoped that Annette might appear and conclude her present state of torturing suspense. End of Volume 3, Chapter 5 Recording by Sheila Morton in Jefferson City, Tennessee the Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section A. Might we but hear the folded flocks penned in their wattled coats, or sound of pastoral weed with open stops, or whistle from the lodge or village cock, count the night watches to his feathery dames, would be some solace yet, some little cheering in this close dungeon of innumerous boughs. Milton. In the morning, Emily was relieved from her fears for Annette, who came at an early hour. Here were fine doings in the castle last night, mademoiselle, said she as soon as she entered the room. Fine doings indeed. Was you not frightened, mademoiselle, at not seeing me? I was alarmed, both on your account and on my own, replied Emily. What detained you? I, I said so, I told him so, but it would not do. It was not my fault indeed, mademoiselle, for I could not get out. 
That rogue Ludovico locked me up again. Locked you up? said Emily with displeasure. Why do you permit Ludovico to lock you up? Holy saints! exclaimed Annette. How can I help it? If he will lock the door, mademoiselle, and take away the key, how am I to get out, unless I jump through the window? But that I should not mind so much if the casements here were not all so high. One can hardly scramble up to them on the inside, and one should break one's neck, I suppose, going down on the outside. But you know, I dare say, ma'am, what a hurly-burly the castle was in last night. You must have heard some of the uproar. What, were they disputing then? said Emily. No, mademoiselle, not fighting, but almost as good, for I believe there was not one of the signors sober, and what is more, not one of those fine ladies sober either. I thought when I saw them first that all those fine silks and fine veils, why, mademoiselle, their veils were worked with silver, and fine trimmings boded no good. I guessed what they were. Good God! exclaimed Emily. What will become of me? I, ma'am, Ludovico said much the same thing of me. Good God, said he, Annette, what is to become of you, if you are to go running about the castle among all these drunken signors? Oh, says I, for that matter I only want to go to my young lady's chamber, and I have only to go, you know, along the vaulted passage, and across the great hall, and up the marble staircase, and along the north gallery, and through the west wing of the castle, and I am in the corridor in a minute. Are you so, says he, and what is to become of you if you meet any of those noble cavaliers in the way? Well, says I, if you think there is danger, then go with me and guard me. I am never afraid when you are by. What, says he, when I am scarcely recovered of one wound, shall I put myself in the way of getting another? For if any of the cavaliers meet you, they will fall a-fighting with me directly. No, no, says he, I will cut the way shorter than through the vaulted passage, and up the marble staircase, and along the north gallery, and through the west wing of the castle. For you shall stay here, Annette. You shall not go out of this room tonight. So, with that, I says, Well, well, said Emily impatiently, and anxious to inquire on another subject. So, he locked you up? Yes, he did indeed, Mademoiselle, notwithstanding all I could say to the contrary. And Caterina and I and he stayed there all night. And in a few minutes after, I was not so vexed, for there came Signor Verizzi, roaring along the passage like a mad bull, and he mistook Ludovico's hall for old Carlo's. So he tried to burst open the door and called out for more wine, for that he had drunk all the flasks dry and was dying of thirst. So we were all as still as night that he might suppose there was nobody in the room, but the Signor was as cunning as the best of us, and kept calling out at the door. Come forth, my ancient hero, said he. Here is no enemy at the gate that you need hide yourself. Come forth, my valorous Signor Steward. Just then old Carlo opened his door and he came with a flask in his hand, for as soon as the Signor saw him, he was as tame as could be, and followed him away as naturally as a dog does a butcher with a piece of meat in his basket. All this I saw through the keyhole. Well, Annette, said Ludovico jeeringly, shall I let you out now? Oh, no, says I, I would not. I have some questions to ask you on another subject. 
interrupted Emily, quite wearied by this story. "'Do you know whether there are any prisoners in the castle, "'and whether they are confined at this end of the edifice?' "'I was not in the way, mademoiselle,' replied Annette, "'when the first party came in from the mountains, "'and the last party is not come back yet, "'so I don't know whether there are any prisoners. "'But it is expected back tonight or tomorrow, "'and I shall know then, perhaps.' "'Emily inquired if she had ever heard the servants talk of prisoners.' "'Mamselle,' said Annette archly, "'now I dare say you are thinking of Monsieur Valancourt, "'and that he may have come among the armies "'which they say are come from our country "'to fight against this state, "'and that he has met with some of our people "'and is taken captive. "'Oh, Lord, how glad I should be if it was so!' "'Would you indeed be glad?' "'said Emily in a tone of mournful reproach.' "'To be sure I should, ma'am,' replied Annette, "'and would not you be glad, too, to see Signor Valancourt? "'I don't know any chevalier I like better. "'I have a very great regard for the Signor, truly.' "'Your regard for him cannot be doubted,' said Emily, "'since you wish to see him a prisoner.' "'Why, no, mademoiselle, not a prisoner, either. "'But one must be glad to see him, you know, "'and it was only the other night I dreamt—' I dreamt I saw him drive into the castle yard all in a coach and six, and dressed out with a laced coat and a sword like a lord as he is. Emily could not forbear smiling at Annette's ideas of Valancourt, and repeated her inquiry whether she had heard the servants talk of prisoners. No, mademoiselle, replied she, never, and lately they have done nothing but talk of the apparition that has been walking about of a night on the ramparts, and that frightened the sentinels into fits. It came among them like a flash of fire, they say, and they all fell down in a row till they came to themselves again, and then it was gone, and nothing to be seen but the old castle walls, so they helped one another up again as fast as they could. You would not believe, Mademoiselle, though I showed you the very cannon where it used to appear. And are you indeed so simple, Annette? said Emily, smiling at this curious exaggeration of the circumstances she had witnessed, as to credit these stories. Credit them, Mademoiselle? Why, all the world could not persuade me out of them. Roberto and Sebastian and half a dozen more of them went into fits. To be sure, there was no occasion for that, I said myself. There was no need of that. For, says I, when the enemy comes, what a pretty figure they will cut if they are to fall down in fits all of a row. The enemy won't be so civil, perhaps, as to walk off, like the ghost, and leave them to help one another up, but will fall to, cutting and slashing till he makes them all rise up dead men. No, no, says I, there is reason in all things. Though I might have fallen down in a fit, that was no rule for them, being because it is no business of mine to look gruff and fight battles. Emily endeavored to correct the superstitious weakness of Annette, though she could not entirely subdue her own, to which the latter only replied, Nay, mademoiselle, you will believe nothing. You are almost as bad as the signor himself, who was in a great passion when they told what had happened, and swore that the first man who repeated such nonsense should be thrown into the dungeon under the east turret. This was a hard punishment, too, for only talking nonsense, as he called it. "'but I dare say he had other reasons for calling it so than you have, ma'am.' "'Emily looked displeased and made no reply. 
as she mused upon the recollected appearance which had lately so much alarmed her, and considered the circumstances of the figure having stationed itself opposite to her casement, she was for a moment inclined to believe it was Valancourt whom she had seen. Yet, if it was he, why did he not speak to her when he had the opportunity of doing so? And if he was a prisoner in the castle, and he could be here in no other character, how could he obtain the means of walking abroad on the rampart? Thus she was utterly unable to decide whether the musician and the form she had observed were the same, or, if they were, whether this was Valancourt. She, however, desired that Annette would endeavor to learn whether any prisoners were in the castle, and also their names. Oh, dear Mamselle, said Annette, I forget to tell you what you bade me ask about, the ladies, as they call themselves, who are lately come to Udolpho. Why, that Signor Livona that the Signor brought to see my late lady at Venice is his mistress now, and was little better then, I dare say. And Ludovico says, but pray be secret, ma'am, that his Excellenza introduced her only to impose upon the world that had begun to make free with her character. So when people saw my lady notice her, they thought what they had heard must be scandal. The other two are the mistresses of Signor Verizzi and Signor Bertolini, and Signor Montoni invited them all to the castle. And so, yesterday, he gave a great entertainment, and there they were, all drinking Tuscany wine and all sorts, and laughing and singing till they made the castle ring again. But I thought they were dismal sounds so soon after my poor lady's death, too, and they brought to my mind what she would have thought if she had heard them. But she cannot hear them now, poor soul, said I. Emily turned away to conceal her emotion, and then desired Annette to go and make inquiry concerning the prisoners that might be in the castle, but conjured her to do it with caution, and on no account to mention her name, or that of Monsieur Valancourt. Now I think of it, mademoiselle, said Annette, I do believe there are prisoners, for I overheard one of the Signor's men yesterday in the servants' hall talking something about ransoms, and saying what a fine thing it was for his excellence to catch up men, and they were as good booty as any other because of the ransoms. And the other man was grumbling and saying it was fine enough for the Signor, but none so fine for his soldiers, because, said he, we don't go shares there. This information heightened Emily's impatience to know more, and Annette immediately departed on her inquiry. The late resolution of Emily to resign her estates to Montoni now gave way to new considerations. The possibility that Valancourt was near her revived her fortitude, and she determined to brave the threatened vengeance, at least till she could be assured whether he was really in the castle. She was in this temper of mind when she received a message from Montoni, requiring her attendance in the cedar parlor, which she obeyed with trembling, and on her way thither endeavored to animate her fortitude with the idea of Valancourt. Montoni was alone. I sent for you, said he, to give you another opportunity of retracting your late mistaken assertions concerning the Languedoc estates. I will condescend to advise where I may command. If you are really deluded by an opinion that you have any right to these estates, at least do not persist in the error. An error which you may perceive too late has been fatal to you. Dare my resentment no further, but sign the papers. If I have no right in these estates, sir, said Emily, of what service can it be to you that I should sign any papers concerning them? If the lands are yours by law, you certainly may possess them without my interference or my consent. I will have no more argument, 
said Montoni, with a look that made her tremble. What had I but trouble to expect when I condescended to reason with a baby? But I will be trifled with no longer. Let the recollection of your aunt's sufferings in consequence of her folly and obstinacy teach you a lesson. Sign the papers. Emily's resolution was for a moment odd. She shrunk at the recollections he revived, and from the vengeance he threatened. But then the image of Valancourt, who so long had loved her, and who was now perhaps so near her, came to her heart, and together with the strong feelings of indignation with which she had always, from her infancy, regarded an act of injustice, inspired her with a noble, though imprudent, courage. "'Sign the papers,' said Montoni, more impatiently than before. "'Never, sir.' replied Emily. That request would have proved to me the injustice of your claim had I even been ignorant of my right. Montoni turned pale with anger, while his quivering lip and lurking eye made her almost repent the boldness of her speech. Then all my vengeance falls upon you, he exclaimed with an horrible oath, and think not it shall be delayed. Neither the estates in Languedoc or Gascony shall be yours. You have dared to question my right, now dare to question my power. I have a punishment which you think not of. It is terrible. This night, this very night. This night, repeated another voice. Montoni paused and turned half round, but seeming to recollect himself, he proceeded in a lower tone. You have lately seen one terrible example of obstinacy and folly, yet this, it appears, has not been sufficient to deter you. I would tell you of others. I could make you tremble at the bare recital. He was interrupted by a groan which seemed to rise from underneath the chamber they were in, and as he threw a glance round it, impatience and rage flashed from his eyes, yet something like a shade of fear passed over his countenance. Emily sat down in a chair near the door, for the various emotions she had suffered now almost overcame her. But Montoni paused scarcely an instant, and commanding his features, resumed his discourse in a lower, yet sterner voice. I say I could give you other instances of my power and of my character, which it seems you do not understand, or you would not defy me. I could tell you that when once my resolution is taken... Oh, but I am talking to a baby. Let me, however, repeat that terrible as are the examples I could recite, the recital could not now benefit you, for though your repentance would put an immediate end to opposition, it would not now appease my indignation. I will have vengeance as well as justice. Another groan filled the pause which Montoni made. Leave the room instantly, said he, seeming not to notice this strange occurrence. Without power to implore his pity, she rose to go, but found that she could not support herself. Awe and terror overcame her, and she sunk again into the chair. "'Quit my presence!' cried Montoni. "'This affectation of fear ill becomes the heroine who has just dared to brave my indignation.' "'Did you hear nothing, Signor?' said Emily, trembling and still unable to leave the room. "'I heard my own voice,' rejoined Montoni sternly. "'And nothing else?' said Emily, speaking with difficulty. "'There, again! Do you hear nothing now?' "'Obey my order,' repeated Montoni, "'and for these fool's tricks 
I will soon discover by whom they are practised. Emily again rose and exerted herself to the utmost to leave the room while Montoni followed her, but instead of calling aloud to his servants to search the chamber, as he had formerly done on a similar occurrence, passed to the ramparts. As in her way to the corridor she rested for a moment at an open casement, Emily saw a party of Montoni's troops winding down a distant mountain, whom she noticed no further than as they brought to her mind the wretched prisoners they were perhaps bringing to the castle. At length, having reached her apartment, she threw herself upon the couch, overcome with the new horrors of her situation. Her thoughts lost in tumult and perplexity, she could neither repent of or approve her late conduct. She could only remember that she was in the power of a man who had no principle of action but his will, and the astonishment and terrors of superstition which had for a moment so strongly assailed her now yielded to those of reason. End of Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section A Recording by Sheila Morton in Jefferson City, Tennessee the Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section B. Emily was at length roused from the reverie which engaged her by a confusion of distant voices and a clattering of hoofs that seemed to come on the wind from the courts. A sudden hope that some good was approaching seized her mind till she remembered the troops she had observed from the casement and concluded this to be the party which Annette had said were expected at Udolpho. Soon after, she heard voices faintly from the halls, and the noise of horses' feet sunk away in the wind. Silence ensued. Emily listened anxiously for Annette's step in the corridor, but a pause of total stillness continued, till again the castle seemed to be all tumult and confusion. She heard the echoes of many footsteps passing to and fro in the halls and avenues below, and then busy tongues were loud on the rampart. Having hurried to her casement, she perceived Montoni with some of his officers leaning on the walls and pointing from them, while several soldiers were employed at the further end of the rampart about some cannon, and she continued to observe them, careless of the passing time. Annette at length appeared, but brought no intelligence of Valancourt. For, Mademoiselle, said she, all the people pretend to know nothing about any prisoners. But here is a fine piece of business. The rest of the party are just arrived, ma'am. They came scampering in as if they would have broken their necks. One scarcely knew whether the man or his horse would get within the gate first. And they have brought word, and such news! They have brought word that a party of the enemy, as they call them, are coming towards the castle. So we shall have all the officers of justice, I suppose, besieging it. All those terrible-looking fellows one used to see at Venice. Thank God! exclaimed Emily fervently. There is yet a hope left for me, then. What mean you, mademoiselle? Do you wish to fall into the hands of those sad-looking men? Why, I used to shudder as I passed them, and should have guessed what they were if Ludovico had not told me. We cannot be in worse hands than at present, replied Emily unguardedly. But what reason have you to suppose these are officers of justice? Why, our people, ma'am, are all in such a fright and a fuss, and I don't know anything but the fear of justice that could make them so. I used to think nothing on earth could fluster them, unless indeed it was a ghost or so, but now some of them are for hiding down in the vaults under the castle. But you must not tell the Signor this, mademoiselle, and I overheard two of them talking. 
Holy mother, what makes you look so sad, mademoiselle? You don't hear what I say. Yes, I do, Annette. Pray proceed. Well, mademoiselle, all the castle is in such hurly-burly. Some of the men are loading the cannon, and some are examining the great gates and the walls all round, and are hammering and patching up, just as if all those repairs had never been made that were so long about. But what is to become of me, and you, mademoiselle, and Ludovico? Oh, when I hear the sound of the cannon, I shall die with fright. If I could but catch the great gate open for one minute, I would be even with it for shutting me within these walls so long. It should never see me again. Emily caught the latter words of Annette. Oh, if you could find it open but for one moment, she exclaimed, my peace might yet be saved. The heavy groan she uttered in the wildness of her look terrified Annette, still more than her words, who entreated Emily to explain the meaning of them to whom it suddenly occurred that Ludovico might be of some service if there should be a possibility of escape, and who repeated the substance of what had passed between Montoni and herself, but conjured her to mention this to no person except to Ludovico. It may perhaps be in his power, she added, to effect our escape. Go to him, Annette, tell him what I have to apprehend, and what I have already suffered but entreat him to be secret and to lose no time in attempting to release us. If he is willing to undertake this, he shall be amply rewarded. I cannot speak with him myself, for we might be observed, and then effectual care would be taken to prevent our flight. But be quick, Annette, and above all, be discreet. I will await your return in this apartment. The girl, whose honest heart had been much affected by the recital, was now as eager to obey as Emily was to employ her, and she immediately quitted the room. Emily's surprise increased as she reflected upon Annette's intelligence. Alas, said she, what can the officers of justice do against an armed castle? These cannot be such. Upon further consideration, however, she concluded that, Montoni's bands having plundered the country round, the inhabitants had taken arms, and were coming with the officers of police and a party of soldiers to force their way into the castle. But they know not, thought she, its strength or the armed numbers within it. Alas, except for flight, I have nothing to hope. Montoni, though not precisely what Emily apprehended him to be, a captain of banditti, had employed his troops in enterprises not less daring or less atrocious than such a character would have undertaken. They had not only pillaged, whenever opportunity offered, the helpless traveller, but had attacked and plundered the villas of several persons, which, being situated among the solitary recesses of the mountains, were totally unprepared for resistance. In these expeditions the commanders of the party did not appear, and the men, partly disguised, had sometimes been mistaken for common robbers, and, at others, for bands of the foreign enemy, who, at that period, invaded the country. But though they had already pillaged several mansions, and brought home considerable treasures, they had ventured to approach only one castle, in the attack of which they were assisted by other troops of their own order. From this, however, they were vigorously repulsed and pursued by some of the foreign enemy, who were in league with the besieged. Montoni's troops fled precipitately toward Udolpho, but 
were so closely tracked over the mountains that when they reached one of the heights in the neighborhood of the castle and looked back upon the road, they perceived the enemy winding among the cliffs below and at not more than a league distant. Upon this discovery, they hastened forward with increased speed to prepare Montoni for the enemy, and it was their arrival which had thrown the castle into such confusion and tumult. As Emily awaited anxiously some information from below, she now saw from her casements a body of troops pour over the neighboring heights. And though Annette had been gone a very short time and had a difficult and dangerous business to accomplish, her impatience for intelligence became painful. She listened, opened her door, and often went out upon the corridor to meet her. At length, she heard a footstep approach her chamber, and, on opening the door, saw not Annette, but old Carlo. New fears rushed upon her mind. He said he came from the Signor, who had ordered him to inform her that she must be ready to depart from Udolfo immediately, for that the castle was about to be besieged, and that the mules were preparing to convey her, with her guides, to a place of safety. "'Of safety?' exclaimed Emily thoughtlessly. Has then the Signor so much consideration for me? Carlo looked upon the ground and made no reply. A thousand opposite emotions agitated Emily successively as she listened to old Carlo. Those of joy, grief, distrust, and apprehension appeared and vanished from her mind with the quickness of lightning. One moment it seemed impossible that Montoni could take this measure merely for her preservation, and so very strange was his sending her from the castle at all that she could attribute it only to the design of carrying into execution the new scheme of vengeance with which he had menaced her. In the next instant it appeared so desirable to quit the castle under any circumstances that she could not but rejoice in the prospect, believing that change must be for the better, till she remembered the probability of Valancourt being detained in it when sorrow and regret usurped her mind, and she wished much more fervently than she had yet done that it might not be his voice which she had heard. Carlo, having reminded her that she had no time to lose, for that the enemy were within sight of the castle, Emily entreated him to inform her whither she was to go, and after some hesitation he said he had received no orders to tell, but on her repeating the question replied that he believed she was to be carried into Tuscany. "'To Tuscany!' exclaimed Emily. "'And why thither?' Carlo answered that he knew nothing further than that she was to be lodged in a cottage on the borders of Tuscany at the feet of the Apennines. "'Not a day's journey distant,' said he. Emily now dismissed him, and, with trembling hands, prepared the small package that she meant to take with her, while she was employed about which Annette returned. Oh, mademoiselle, said she, nothing can be done. Ludovico says the new porter is more watchful even than Barnardine was, and we might as well throw ourselves in the way of a dragon as in his. Ludovico is almost as broken-hearted as you are, ma'am, on my account, he says, and I am sure I shall never live to hear the cannon fire twice. She now began to weep, but revived upon hearing of what had just occurred, and entreated Emily to take her with her. That I will do most willingly, replied Emily, if Signor Montoni permits it. To which Annette made no reply, but ran out of the room and immediately sought Montoni, who was on the terrace, surrounded by his officers, where she began her petition. He sharply bade her go into the castle, and absolutely refused her request. Annette, however, not only pleaded for herself, but for Ludovico, and Montoni had ordered some of his men to take her from his presence before she would retire. 
In an agony of disappointment, she returned to Emily, who foreboded little good towards herself from this refusal to Annette, and who, soon after, received a summons to repair to the great court, where the mules, with their guides, were in waiting. Emily here tried in vain to soothe the weeping Annette, who persisted in saying that she should never see her dear young lady again, a fear which her mistress secretly thought too well justified, but which she endeavored to restrain, while, with apparent composure, she bade this affectionate servant farewell. Annette, however, followed to the courts, which were now thronged with people, busy in preparation for the enemy, and having seen her mount her mule and depart with her attendants, through the portal, turned into the castle, and wept again. Emily, meanwhile, as she looked back upon the gloomy courts of the castle, no longer silent as when she had first entered them, but resounding with the noise of preparation for their defense, as well as crowded with soldiers and workmen hurrying to and fro, and when she passed once more under the huge portcullis which had formerly struck her with terror and dismay, and looking round saw no walls to confine her steps, felt, in spite of anticipation, the sudden joy of a prisoner who unexpectedly finds himself at liberty. This emotion would not suffer her now to look impartially on the dangers that awaited her without, on mountains infested by hostile parties who seized every opportunity for plunder, and on a journey commended under the guidance of men whose countenances certainly did not speak favorably of their dispositions. In the present moments she could only rejoice that she was liberated from those walls which she had entered with such dismal forebodings. And remembering the superstitious presentiment which had then seized her, she could now smile at the impression it had made upon her mind. As she gazed with these emotions upon the turrets of the castle rising high over the woods, among which she wound, the stranger, whom she believed to be confined there, returned to her remembrance, and anxiety and apprehension, lest he should be Valancourt, again passed like a cloud upon her joy. She recollected every circumstance concerning this unknown person, since the night when she had first heard him play the song of her native province, circumstances which she had so often recollected and compared before without extracting from them anything like conviction, and which still only prompted her to believe that Valancourt was a prisoner at Udolpho. It was possible, however, that the men who were her conductors might afford her information on this subject. But fearing to question them immediately, lest they should be unwilling to discover any circumstance to her in the presence of each other, she watched for an opportunity of speaking with them separately. Soon after, a trumpet echoed faintly from a distance. The guide stopped and looked toward the quarter whence it came, but the thick woods which surrounded them excluded all view of the country beyond. One of the men rode on to the point of an eminence that afforded a more extensive prospect to observe how near the enemy, whose trumpet he guessed this to be, were advanced. The other, meanwhile, remained with Emily, and to him she put some questions concerning the stranger at Udolpho. Ugo, for this was his name, said that there were several prisoners in the castle, but he neither recollected their persons or the precise time of their arrival, and could therefore give her no information. There was a surliness in his manner, as he spoke, that made it probable he would not have satisfied her inquiries even if he could have done so. Having asked him what prisoners had been taken, about the time as nearly as she could remember, when she had first heard the music, All that week, said Ugo, I was out with a party upon the mountains and knew nothing of what was doing at the castle. We had enough upon our hands. We had warm work of it. Bertrand, the other man, being now returned, Emily inquired no further, and when he had related to his companion what he had seen, they travelled on in deep silence. 
while Emily often caught between the opening woods partial glimpses of the castle above. The west towers, whose battlements were now crowded with archers, and the ramparts below, where soldiers were seen hurrying along, were busy upon the walls preparing the cannon. Having emerged from the woods, they wound along the valley in an opposite direction to that from whence the enemy were approaching. Emily now had a full view of Adolfo, with its grey walls, towers, and terraces, high overtopping the precipices and the dark woods, and glittering partially with the arms of the condottieri, as the sun's rays, streaming through an autumnal cloud, glanced upon a part of the edifice whose remaining features stood in darkened majesty. She continued to gaze, through her tears, upon walls that, perhaps, confined Valancourt, and which now, as the cloud floated away, were lighted up with sudden splendor, and then, as suddenly, were shrouded in gloom. While the passing gleam fell on the woodtops below and heightened the first tints of autumn that had begun to steal upon the foliage. The winding mountains at length shut Udolpho from her view, and she turned with mournful reluctance to other objects. The melancholy sighing of the wind among the pines that waved high over the steeps and the distant thunder of a torrent assisted her musings and conspired with the wild scenery around to diffuse over her mind emotions solemn yet not unpleasing, but which were soon interrupted by the distant roar of cannon echoing among the mountains. The sounds rolled along the wind and were repeated in faint and fainter reverberation till they sunk in sullen murmurs. This was a signal that the enemy had reached the castle, and fear for Valancourt again tormented Emily. She turned her anxious eyes towards that part of the country where the edifice stood, but the intervening heights concealed it from her view. Still, however, she saw the tall head of a mountain which immediately fronted her late chamber, and on this she fixed her gaze, as if it could have told her of all that was passing in the scene it overlooked. The guides twice reminded her that she was losing time, and that they had far to go before she could turn from this interesting object, and even when she again moved onward, she often sent a look back, till only its blue point, brightening in a gleam of sunshine, appeared peeping over other mountains. The sound of the cannon affected Ugo, as the blast of the trumpet does the war-horse. It called forth all the fire of his nature. He was impatient to be in the midst of the fight, and uttered frequent execrations against Montoni for having sent him to a distance. The feelings of his comrades seemed to be very opposite, and adapted rather to the cruelties than to the dangers of war. Emily asked frequent questions concerning the place of her destination, but could only learn that she was going to a cottage in Tuscany, and whenever she mentioned the subject, she fancied she perceived in the countenances of these men an expression of malice and cunning that alarmed her. It was afternoon when they had left the castle. During several hours they traveled through regions of profound solitude, where no bleat of sheep or bark of watchdog broke the silence, and they were now too far off to hear even the faint thunder of the cannon. Towards evening they wound down precipices black with forests of cypress, pine, and cedar into a glen so savage and secluded that if solitude ever had local habitation, this might have been her place of dearest residence. To Emily it appeared a spot exactly suited for the retreat of banditti, and in her imagination she already saw them lurking under the brow of some projecting rock, whence their shadows, lengthened by the setting sun, stretched across the road and warned the traveller of his danger. She shuddered at the idea, and looking at her conductors, to observe whether they were armed, thought she saw in them the banditti she dreaded. 
It was in this glen that they proposed to alight. For, said Ugo, night will come on presently, and then the wolves will make it dangerous to stop. This was a new subject of alarm to Emily, but inferior to what she suffered from the thought of being left in these wilds at midnight, with two such men as her present conductors. Dark and dreadful hints of what might be Montoni's purpose in sending her hither came to her mind. She endeavored to dissuade the men from stopping, and inquired with anxiety how far they had yet to go. "'Many leagues yet,' replied Bertrand. "'As for you, Signora, you may do as you please about eating, but for us we will make a hearty supper while we can. We shall have need of it, I warrant, before we finish our journey. The sun's going down apace. Let us alight under that rock yonder.' His comrade assented, and turning the mules out of the road, they advanced towards a cliff overhung with cedars. Emily following in trembling silence. They lifted her from her mule, and having seated themselves on the grass at the foot of the rocks, drew some homely fare from a wallet, of which Emily tried to eat a little, the better to disguise her apprehensions. The sun was now sunk behind the high mountains in the west, upon which a purple haze began to spread, and the gloom of twilight to draw over the surrounding objects. To the low and sullen murmur of the breeze passing among the woods, she no longer listened with any degree of pleasure, for it conspired with the wildness of the scene and the evening hour to depress her spirits. End of Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section B Recording by Sheila Morton in Jefferson City, Tennessee The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section C. Suspense had so much increased Emily's anxiety as to the prisoner at Udolpho, that finding it impracticable to speak alone with Bertrand on that subject, she renewed her questions in the presence of Ugo. But he either was or pretended to be entirely ignorant concerning the stranger. When he had dismissed the question, he talked with Ugo on some subject which led to the mention of Signor Orsino, and of the affair that had banished him from Venice, respecting which Emily had ventured to ask a few questions. Ugo appeared to be well acquainted with the circumstances of that tragical event, and related some minute particulars that both shocked and surprised her, for it appeared very extraordinary how such particulars could be known to any but to persons present when the assassination was committed. He was of rank, said Bertrand, or the state would not have troubled itself to inquire after his assassins. The Signor has been lucky hitherto. This is not the first affair of the kind he has had upon his hands. And to be sure, when a gentleman has no other way of getting redress, why, he must take this. Aye, said Ugo, and why is not this as good as another? This is the way to have justice done at once, without more ado. If you go to the law, you must stay till the judges please, and may lose your cause at last. Why, the best way, then, is to make sure of your right, while you can, and execute justice yourself. Yes, yes, rejoined Bertrand. If you wait till justice is done, you may stay long enough. Why, if I want a friend of mine properly served, how am I to get my revenge? Ten to one they will tell me he is in the right, and I am in the wrong. Or if a fellow has got possession of property, which I think ought to be mine, why, I may wait till I starve, perhaps, before the law will give it me, and then, after all, the judge may say, the estate is his. What is to be done, then? Why, the case is plain enough, I must take it at last. 
Emily's horror at this conversation was heightened by a suspicion that the latter part of it was pointed against herself, and that these men had been commissioned by Montoni to execute a similar kind of justice in his cause. But I was speaking of Signor Orsino, resumed Bertrand. He is one of those who love to do justice at once. I remember, about ten years ago, the Signor had a quarrel with a Cavallero of Milan. The story was told me then, and it is still fresh in my head. They quarreled about a lady that the Signor liked, and she was perverse enough to prefer the gentleman of Milan, and even carried her whim so far as to marry him. This provoked the Signor as well it might, for he had tried to talk reason to her a long while, and used to send people to serenade her under her window of a night and used to make verses about her, and would swear she was the handsomest lady in Milan. But all would not do, nothing would bring her to reason. And as I said, she went so far at last as to marry this other cavallero. This made the Signor wrath with a vengeance. He resolved to be even with her, though, and he watched his opportunity and did not wait long, for soon after the marriage they set out for Padua, nothing doubting, I warrant, of what was preparing for them. The Cavaliero thought to be sure he was to be called to no account, but was to go off triumphant. But he was soon made to know another sort of story. What, then, the lady had promised to have, Signor Orsino? said Ugo. Promised? No, replied Bertrand. She had not wit enough even to tell him she liked him, as I heard. But the contrary, for she used to say from the first she never meant to have him. And this was what provoked the Signor so, and with good reason, for who likes to be told that he is disagreeable? And this was saying as good. It was enough to tell him this. She need not have gone and married another. What, she married then on purpose to plague the Signor? said Ugo. I don't know as for that, replied Bertrand. They said, indeed, that she had had a regard for the other gentleman a great while, but that is nothing to the purpose. She should not have married him, and then the Signor would not have been so much provoked. She might have expected what was to follow. It was not to be supposed he would bear her ill usage tamely, and she might thank herself for what happened. But, as I said, they set out for Padua, she and her husband, and the road lay over some barren mountains like these. This suited the Signor's purpose well. He watched the time of their departure, and sent his men after them with directions what to do. They kept their distance till they saw their opportunity, and this did not happen till the second day's journey, when, the gentleman having sent his servants forward to the next town, maybe to have horses in readiness, the Signor's men quickened their pace, and overtook the carriage in a hollow between two mountains, where the woods prevented the servants from seeing what passed, though they were then not far off. When we came up, we fired our tromboni, but missed. Emily turned pale at these words, and then hoped she had mistaken them, while Bertrand proceeded. The gentleman fired again, but he was soon made to alight, and it was as he turned to call his people that he was struck. It was the most dexterous feat you ever saw. He was struck in the back with three stilettos at once. He fell and was dispatched in a minute. But the lady escaped, for the servants had heard the firing, and came up before she could be taken care of. Bertrand, said the Signor, when his men returned. Bertrand, exclaimed Emily, pale with horror, on whom not a syllable of this narrative had been lost. Bertrand, did I say, rejoined the man with some confusion. N no, Giovanni, but I have forgot where I was. Bertrand, said the Signor. 
Bertrand again, said Emily in a faltering voice. Why do you repeat that name? Bertrand swore. What signifies it, he proceeded, what the man was called. Bertrand or Giovanni or Roberto, it's all one for that. You have put me out twice with that question. Bertrand or Giovanni or what you will, Bertrand, said the signor, if your comrades had done their duty as well as you, I should not have lost the lady. Go, my honest fellow, and be happy with this. He gave him a purse of gold, and little enough, too, considering the service he had done him. Aye, aye, said Ugo, little enough, little enough. Emily now breathed with difficulty and could scarcely support herself. When first she saw these men, their appearance and their connection with Montoni had been sufficient to impress her with distrust. But now, when one of them had betrayed himself to be a murderer, and she saw herself at the approach of night under his guidance, among wild and solitary mountains, and going she scarcely knew whither, the most agonizing terror seized her, which was the less supportable from the necessity she found herself under of concealing all symptoms of it from her companions. Reflecting on the character and the menaces of Montoni, it appeared not improbable that he had delivered her to them for the purpose of having her murdered, and of thus securing to himself, without further opposition or delay, the estates for which he had so long and so desperately contended. Yet if this was his design, there appeared no necessity for sending her to such a distance from the castle, for if any dread of discovery had made him unwilling to perpetrate the deed there, a much nearer place might have sufficed for the purpose of concealment. These considerations, however, did not immediately occur to Emily, with whom so many circumstances conspired to rouse terror that she had no power to oppose it, or to inquire coolly into its grounds. And if she had done so, still, there were many appearances which would too well have justified her most terrible apprehensions. She did not now dare to speak to her conductors, at the sound of whose voices she trembled. And when, now and then, she stole a glance at them, their countenances, seen imperfectly through the gloom of evening, served to confirm her fears. The sun had now been set some time. Heavy clouds, whose lower skirts were tinged with sulphurous crimson, lingered in the west and threw a reddish tint upon the pine forests, which sent forth a solemn sound as the breeze rolled over them. The hollow moan struck upon Emily's heart and served to render more gloomy and terrific every object around her. The mountains, shaded in twilight, the gleaming torrent hoarsely roaring, the black forests and the deep glen broken into rocky recesses, high overshadowed by cypress and sycamore and winding into long obscurity. To this glen, Emily, as she sent forth her anxious eye, thought there was no end. No hamlet or even cottage was seen, and still no distant bark of watchdog or even faint, far-off halloo came on the wind. In a tremulous voice, she now ventured to remind the guides that it was growing late, and to ask again how far they had to go. But they were too much occupied by their own discourse to attend to her question, which she forbore to repeat, lest it should provoke a surly answer. Having, however, soon after finished their supper, the men collected the fragments into their wallet and proceeded along this winding glen in gloomy silence, while Emily again mused upon her own situation and concerning the motives of Montoni for involving her in it. That it was for some evil purpose towards herself she had no doubt, and it seemed that if he did not intend to destroy her with a view of immediately seizing her estates, he meant to reserve her a while in concealment for some more terrible design for one that might equally gratify his avarice, and still more, his deep revenge. 
At this moment, remembering Signor Brocchio and his behavior in the corridor a few preceding nights, the latter supposition, horrible as it was, strengthened in her belief. Yet why remove her from the castle, where deeds of darkness had, she feared, been often executed with secrecy? From chambers, perhaps, with many a foul and midnight murder stained. The dread of what she might be going to encounter was now so excessive that it sometimes threatened her senses, and often as she went she thought of her late father and of all he would have suffered could he have foreseen the strange and dreadful events of her future life, and how anxiously he would have avoided that fatal confidence which committed his daughter to the care of a woman so weak as was Madame Montoni. So romantic and improbable indeed did her present situation appear to Emily herself, particularly when she compared it with the repose and beauty of her early days, that there were moments when she could almost have believed herself the victim of frightful visions glaring upon a disordered fancy. Restrained by the presence of her guides from expressing her terrors, their acuteness was, at length, lost in gloomy despair. The dreadful view of what might await her hereafter rendered her almost indifferent to the surrounding dangers. She now looked, with little emotion, on the wild dingles and the gloomy road and mountains whose outlines were only distinguishable through the dusk, objects which but lately had affected her spirits so much as to awaken horrid views of the future and to tinge these with their own gloom. It was now so nearly dark that the travellers who proceeded only by the slowest pace could scarcely discern their way. The clouds, which seemed charged with thunder, passed slowly along the heavens, showing at intervals the trembling stars, while the groves of cypress and sycamore that overhung the rocks waved high in the breeze as it swept over the glen and then rushed among the distant woods. Emily shivered as it passed. "'Where is the torch?' said Ugo. "'It grows dark.' "'Not so dark yet,' replied Bertrand, "'but we may find our way, and tis best not light the torch before we can help, "'for it may betray us if any straggling party of the enemy is abroad.' Ugo muttered something which Emily did not understand, and they proceeded in darkness, while she almost wished that the enemy might discover them, for from change there was something to hope, since she could scarcely imagine any situation more dreadful than her present one. As they moved slowly along, her attention was surprised by a thin, tapering flame that appeared by fits at the point of the pike which Bertrand carried, resembling what she had observed on the lance of the sentinel the night Madame Montoni died, and which he had said was an omen. The event immediately following it appeared to justify the assertion, and a superstitious impression had remained on Emily's mind, which the present appearance confirmed. She thought it was an omen of her own fate, and watched it successively vanish and return in gloomy silence, which was at length interrupted by Bertrand. "'Let us light the torch,' said he, "'and get under shelter of the woods. A storm is coming on. Look at my lance.' He held it forth with the flame tapering at its point. "'Aye,' said Ugo, "'you are not one of those that believe in omens. We have left cowards at the castle who would turn pale at such a sight.' I have often seen it before a thunderstorm. It is an omen of that, and one is coming now, sure enough. The clouds flash fast already. Emily was relieved by this conversation from some of the terrors of superstition, but those of reason increased as, waiting while Ugo searched for a flint to strike fire, she watched the pale lightning gleam over the woods they were about to enter and illumine the harsh countenances of her companions. Ugo could not find a flint, and Bertrand became impatient, for the thunder sounded hollowly at a distance, and the lightning was more frequent. 
Sometimes it revealed the nearer recesses of the woods, or, displaying some opening in their summits, illumined the ground beneath with partial splendor, the thick foliage of the trees preserving the surrounding scene in deep shadow. At length, Ugo found a flint, and the torch was lighted. The men then dismounted, and having assisted Emily, led the mules towards the woods that skirted the glen, on the left, over broken ground, frequently interrupted with brushwood and wild plants, which she was often obliged to make a circuit to avoid. She could not approach these woods without experiencing keener sense of her danger. Their deep silence, except when the wind swept among their branches, and impenetrable glooms shone partially by the sudden flash and then by the red glare of the torch, which served only to make darkness visible, were circumstances that contributed to renew all her most terrible apprehensions. She thought, too, that at this moment the countenances of her conductors displayed more than their usual fierceness, mingled with a kind of lurking exultation which they seemed endeavoring to disguise. To her affrighted fancy it occurred that they were leading her into these woods to complete the will of Montoni by her murder. The horrid suggestion called a groan from her heart which surprised her companions, who turned round quickly towards her, and she demanded why they led her thither, beseeching them to continue their way along the open glen, which she represented to be less dangerous than the woods in a thunderstorm. "'No, no,' said Bertrand. "'We know best where the danger lies. "'See how the clouds open over our heads? "'Besides, we can glide under cover of the woods "'with less hazard of being seen "'should any of the enemy be wandering this way. "'By holy St. Peter and all the rest of them, "'I've as stout a heart as the best, "'as many a poor devil could tell if he were alive again. "'But what can we do against numbers?' "'What are you whining about?' said Ugo contemptuously. "'Who fears numbers? Let them come, though they were as many as the Signor's castle could hold. "'I would show the knaves what fighting is. "'For you I would lay you quietly in a dry ditch, "'where you might peep out and see me put the rogues to flight. "'Who talks of fear?' "'Bertrand replied with an horrible oath that he did not like such jesting, "'and a violent altercation ensued which was at length silenced by the thunder.' whose deep volley was heard afar, rolling onward till it burst over their heads in sounds that seemed to shake the earth to its center. The ruffians paused and looked upon each other. Between the boles of the trees the blue lightning flashed and quivered along the ground, while as Emily looked under the boughs, the mountains beyond frequently appeared to be clothed in livid flame. At this moment, perhaps, she felt less fear of the storm than did either of her companions, for other terrors occupied her mind. The men now rested under an enormous chestnut tree, and fixed their pikes in the ground at some distance, on the iron points of which Emily repeatedly observed the lightning play, and then glide down them into the earth. "'I would we were well in the Signor's castle,' said Bertrand. "'I know not why he should send us on this business. Hark, how it rattles above there! I could almost find in my heart to turn priest and pray. Ugo, hast got a rosary?' No, replied Ugo, I leave it to cowards like thee to carry rosaries. I carry a sword. As much good it may do thee in fighting against the storm, said Bertrand. Another peal, which was reverberated in tremendous echoes among the mountains, silenced them for a moment. As it rolled away, Ugo proposed going on. We are only losing time here, said he, for the thick boughs of the woods will shelter us as well as this chestnut tree. 
They again led the mules forward between the boles of the trees and over pathless grass that concealed their high knotted roots. The rising wind was now heard contending with the thunder as it rushed furiously among the branches above and brightened the red flame of the torch, which threw a stronger light forward among the woods and showed their gloomy recesses to be suitable resorts for the wolves of which Ugo had formerly spoken. At length the strength of the wind seemed to drive the storm before it, for the thunder rolled away into distance and was only faintly heard. After traveling through the woods for nearly an hour, during which the elements seemed to have returned to repose, the travelers gradually ascending from the glen found themselves upon the open brow of a mountain, with a wide valley extending in misty moonlight at their feet, and above the blue sky trembling through the few thin clouds that lingered after the storm and were sinking slowly to the verge of the horizon. Emily's spirits, now that she had quitted the woods, began to revive, for she considered that, if these men had received an order to destroy her, they would probably have executed their barbarous purpose in the solitary wild, from whence they had just emerged, where the deed would have been shrouded from every human eye. Reassured by this reflection, and by the quiet demeanor of her guides, Emily, as they proceeded silently in a kind of sheep-track that wound along the skirts of the woods, which ascended on the right, could not survey the sleeping beauty of the vale to which they were declining without a momentary sensation of pleasure. It seemed varied with woods, pastures, and sloping grounds, and was screened to the north and the east by an amphitheater of the Apennines, whose outline on the horizon was here broken into varied and elegant forms. To the west and the south, the landscape extended indistinctly into the lowlands of Tuscany. "'There is the sea yonder,' said Bertrand, as if he had known that Emily was examining the twilight view. "'Yonder in the west, though we cannot see it.' Emily already perceived a change in the climate from that of the wild and mountainous tracks she had left, and as she continued descending, the air became perfumed by the breath of a thousand nameless flowers among the grass, called forth by the late rain. So soothingly beautiful was the scene around her, and so strikingly contrasted to the gloomy grandeur of those to which she had long been confined, and to the manners of the people who moved among them, that she could almost have fancied herself again at La Vallée, and wondering why Montoni had sent her hither, could scarcely believe that he had selected so enchanting a spot for any cruel design. It was, however, probably not the spot, but the persons who happened to inhabit it, and to whose care he could safely commit the execution of his plans, whatever they might be, that had determined his choice. She now ventured again to inquire whether they were near the place of their destination, and was answered by Ugo that they had not far to go. "'Only to the wood of chestnuts in the valley yonder,' said he, "'there by the brook that sparkles with the moon.' I wish I was once at rest there with a flask of good wine and a slice of Tuscany bacon. Emily's spirits revived when she heard that the journey was so nearly concluded, and saw the wood of chestnuts in an open part of the vale on the margin of the stream. In a short time they reached the entrance of the wood, and perceived between the twinkling leaves a light streaming from a distant cottage window. They proceeded along the edge of the brook to where the trees, crowding over it, excluded the moonbeams, but a long line of light from the cottage above was seen on its dark, tremulous surface. Bertrand now stepped on first, and Emily heard him knock and call loudly at the door. 
As she reached it, the small upper casement, where the light appeared, was unclosed by a man, who, having inquired what they wanted, immediately descended, let them into a neat, rustic cot, and called up his wife to set refreshments before the travellers. As this man conversed, rather apart, with Bertrand, Emily anxiously surveyed him. He was a tall, but not robust, peasant of a sallow complexion, and had a shrewd and cunning eye. His countenance was not of a character to win the ready confidence of youth, and there was nothing in his manner that might conciliate a stranger. Ugo called impatiently for supper, and in a tone as if he knew his authority here to be unquestionable. "'I expected you an hour ago,' said the peasant, "'for I have had Signor Montoni's letter these three hours, "'and I and my wife have given you up and gone to bed. "'How did you fare in the storm?' "'Ill enough,' replied Ugo. "'Ill enough, and we are like to fare ill enough here, too, "'unless you will make more haste. "'Get us more wine, and let us see what you have to eat.' "'The peasant placed before them all that his cottage afforded.' ham, wine, figs, and grapes of such size and flavor as Emily had seldom tasted. After taking refreshment, she was shown by the peasant's wife to her little bedchamber, where she asked some questions concerning Montoni, to which the woman, whose name was Dorina, gave reserved answers, pretending ignorance of his excellence's intention in sending Emily hither, but acknowledging that her husband had been apprised of the circumstance. Perceiving that she could obtain no intelligence concerning her destination, Emily dismissed Dorina and retired to repose. But all the busy scenes of her past and the anticipated ones of the future came to her anxious mind and conspired with the sense of her new situation to banish sleep. End of Volume 3, Chapter 6 Recording by Lizzie Driver the Mysteries of Adolphi by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 7 Was naught around but images of rest, Sleep-soothing groves and quiet lawns between, And flowery beds that slumberous influence kept, From poppies breathed and banks of pleasant green, Where never yet was creeping creature seen. Meantime unnumbered glittering streamlets played, and held everywhere their waters sheen, that, as they bickered through the sunny glade, though restless still themselves, though restless still themselves, a lulling murmur made. Thompson When Emily in the morning opened her casement, she was surprised to observe the beauties that surrounded it. The cottage was nearly embowered in the woods, which were chiefly of chestnut intermixed with some cypress, larch, and sycamore. Beneath the dark and spreading branches appeared to the north and to the east the woody Apennines, rising a majestic amphitheatre, not black with pines, as she had been accustomed to see them, but their loftiest summits crowned with antient forests of chestnut, oak, and oriental plain, now animated with the rich tints of autumn and which swept downward to the valley uninterruptedly, except where some bold rocky promontory looked out from among the foliage, and caught the passing gleam. Vineyards stretched along the feet of the mountains, where the elegant villas of the Tuscan nobility frequently adorned the scene, and overlooked slopes clothed with groves of oil, mulberry, orange, and lemon. The plain, to which these declined, was coloured with the riches of cultivation, 
whose mingled hues were mellowed into harmony by an Italian sun. Vines, their purple clusters blushing between the russet foliage, hung in luxuriant festoons from the branches of standard fig and cherry trees, while pastures of verdure, such as Emily had seldom seen in Italy, enriched the banks of a stream that, after descending from the mountains, wound along the landscape, which it reflected, to a bay of the sea. There, far in the west, the waters, fading into the sky, assumed a tint of the faintest purple, and the line of separation between them was, now and then, 